This morning we're going to look at Colossians 1 verses 15 through 20 together, especially going to zero in on verse 20. Colossians 1 verse 15 through 20. And let me pray for the word read and the word preached as we hear it this morning. Father, we are thankful that even as we just prayed that your word works. We pray that we would be taught, that we would be admonished this morning by your word as it's read and as it's preached. Father, would you preach through me a much better sermon than I have in my head this morning? And may your spirit apply a much better sermon than I have this morning. For your glory and for the good of your people. In Christ's name, amen. Colossians 1, 15 through 20, this is the holy and errant word of God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, that is, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross. And though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Next week, as I mentioned, we'll have our missions conference. We're trying to do these biannually. And next week, uh, Brooks Buser will be here from Radius International, and he will preach on Sunday morning on the Great Commission. So he will dive into this a little more uh, poignantly next week, or specifically next week. Tonight, uh, Nick will uh, be walking us through Evangelism 101, and so we'll be doing so even more specifically tonight. What I want to do this morning as we are thinking about united in our witness is our overall theme of this faith focus here in January. And this morning, the sermon itself is to be united in mission. I want to look at that mission from 10,000 feet, if you will. Uh, from these verses and from this passage. And then I want to look, after that, I want to look a little more in-depthly at verse 20 in particular, because I think it has great ramifications for you and I as we go out on mission together and then grab a few applications from that. So 10,000 feet, we'll dig down on verse 20, and then I want to uh, 
give you a few applications this morning. Well, first, just a high-level look at this passage. Paul is addressing a heresy in Colossae. It is a heresy that would later develop into what we know in church history as Gnosticism. There was some kind of teaching that's happening in the church in Colossae where there were teachers that were telling the people that you had to have some kind of greater knowledge, some kind of greater understanding to actually be saved. And so Paul, as we'll see in this passage, what he is doing is he's taking them back and he's saying, no, you don't need anything more than what you've received. Everything that you need is in Christ. And Christ himself is sufficient. And so he's leading them to that. But I want you to see in particular how he does that here in verses 15 through 20. He directs our attention to who Christ is. And he does that in four ways. First, he points out that Christ is the image of the invisible God. That is, he is very God of very God, as we often confess in our creeds as we stand together and say that. What is true of God is seen and it's manifest in the person of Christ. That as you see Christ, so you see God. This is what Jesus himself said. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. The writer of Hebrews will say that in Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. What you see in Christ is true of God. He is God of God. Second, he is not only very God, a very God, he is the creator of all things. He is, Paul says, the firstborn of all of creation. What does that mean? Well, let's make it clear what it does not mean. It does not mean that Christ is the first created being. We know that because the very next clause here says that by him, that is by Christ, all things were created. Everything came into being by the Son. Everything that was ever created came by the direction and by the will of the Son, and he couldn't create himself. Let alone the fact that he wouldn't be very God of very God if he was a created being. He would be somehow less than God. What does Paul mean then? The term firstborn, it's used over a hundred times in the New Testament, and so it's pretty easy to understand what it means, and then you multiply that with all of the times that it's used in the Old Testament. And most of the occurrences have to do with priority and authority. And it's a kind of shorthand for the individual who has the highest honor. Christ has highest honor. He is before all others. Look at it. Look at verse 16. See why? For by him, this explains the phrase right before it, that is, he is the firstborn of all creation. Why? Because by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him. And for him. He's very God of very God, but he is also, secondly, he is the Lord of all of creation. All things created through him, and all things created for him. 
He is a place of prominence. Even angels and demons, as mentioned in verse 16, these thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities and powers were created by him and through him and for him. An old Puritan preacher, I think, said it very well, where he said God's chief end was not to bring Christ into the world for us, but us for Christ. And that's very true. Everything created for Christ. Third, he's not only very God of very God, he's not only the Lord of creation, he is the Lord of providence. Verse 17. In him all things hold together. That is, he sustains everything that you and I know, whether we're looking at the sunrise or whether we're looking at a bird that is flying through the air, whether it is the sound that you're hearing coming from my voice this morning that's entering your ears. All things sustained by him. It is because he is. And so all things hold together. He is the source, or he's the origin, not only of all of creation, but he is also the sustainer of all of creation. He holds all things together. He is God of God, Lord of creation, Lord of providence. And now, verse 18, he is Lord of the church. Paul says he is the head of the body, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He is the source or the origin, not only of creation, but of all of recreation. Life flows from him, and eternal life flows from him. And so can you see what Paul is asserting here? Just in these verses... He's asserting to you and I the preeminence of Christ over all things. He is God of God. He is Lord of creation. He's Lord of providence. He is Lord of the church of salvation. He is the place of highest authority. And heaven above, in creation, in the present world, in the church, he's the source, he's the keeper, he's the goal. Now that truth leads to verse 20. And that's what I want us to focus on, verse 20. Verse 20 is a verse that has garnered not too little bit of attention in the history of the church. It closes this absolutely wonderful Christological hymn. Many believe that these verses 15 through 20 were an early hymn or an early creed that the church would have chanted together or confessed together as we did this morning from the Ten Commandments. And you'll notice that it began in verse 15 with creation, and then it leads to Paul expounding upon reconciliation in verses 21 through 23. And sandwiched in between all of this is verse 20. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now what does that mean? That's my question this morning. What does that mean? To reconcile to himself all things by the blood of his cross. Some 
have understood the reconciling all things in heaven and on earth by the blood of his cross to refer to humans alone. It's humanity, it's humans that need to be reconciled to, to God. It is we who have rebelled. Well, then what do they do with all things in heaven and on earth? In this view, the things on earth are those who lived at the time of Christ and those that lived after the time of Christ. Those are those on earth that are being reconciled and that in heaven that is being reconciled are those that preceded the, the coming of Christ into the world. But it seems clear to me that this fails to consistently understand the phrase all in this passage. It's the same root throughout this passage, and that's why I started us in verse 15 this morning. Christ was the firstborn of all creation. By him, and in the same phrase, all things were created. It's repeated again in that same verse, verse 16. And then in verse 17, he is before all things. Again, the same root word. Verse 18, what the ESV translates as everything, is the same word, all things. Verse 19, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. The scope is not limited in any way as this term, this word, this root word is used throughout this passage. In fact... Verse 15 and 16, we know it isn't limited purely to people. And so I would argue that it shouldn't be limited purely to people in verse 20 either. It's not consistent with the entire passage. Others have understood the reconciling of all things to refer to angels alone. Christ reconciles those angels on earth, fallen angels, and those angels that are in heaven that serve at the right hand of God. But Rather, that those that are on earth, he reconciles, not that he has a kind of peace with them, that they are accepted, but rather that they are subjugated, and that those in heaven are reconciled in the sense that they're no longer able to fall as a result of his atoning work, all things on earth and all things in heaven. I think there's truth here, just as there was truth in the first view. If you flip open uh, a chapter later in Colossians 2 here, verses 14 through 15, Paul ties together the crucifixion of Christ with, quote, the disarming of rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. That is angels. He ties the cross together with triumphing over these fallen angels. But this view doesn't take into account humanity. And so I think it's also faulty. So there are others in the history of the church that have said, well, it must be both. It must be all personal beings. It must be when he's speaking about reconciling all those, reconciling all things in heaven and on earth, it must speak of both humanity and it must speak of fallen angels and it must speak also of non-fallen angels. Angelic host. And this rightfully, I think, takes into account verse 16, which clearly refers to angelic beings, and verses 21 and following, which clearly refers to humanity. It's situated between these two. And yet it still, it still doesn't grab the full scope. Think of what Paul is implying here. He says, all things... 
this is why I want us to consider the entire context of this passage today. Paul begins this Christocentric hymn with creation. And he begins it with creation for a reason. Christ is preeminent in all things. And so he leads us to creation. All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and indivisible, through him and for him. All creation belongs to Christ. Therefore, when Paul speaks about reconciling to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by the blood of his cross in verse 20, the context demands that we see the same language as that used in verse 16. It's the exact same. All things in the created order. He's preeminent over all. And his death upon the cross affects all. All of creation is in view here. If we can say it this way, Christ's death upon the cross established cosmic reconciliation. Cosmic reconciliation. There is nothing his lordship does not touch. Now that doesn't mean that all are saved. Don't believe in a universalism. And Paul will claim there in Philippians 2 that all will unite in bowing to the name of Jesus. It will not be done happily, though, by all, but every knee will bow. Every demon's knee, every unbeliever's knee, they won't do it happily, but they will do it. And every angelic knee and every Christian knee will bow in joy. But it's not just that. I think it's also all of creation. Paul makes that point in Romans 8 when he says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. That's the all things. Christ's death upon the cross established cosmic reconciliation because there was cosmic rebellion. Reconciliation has been secured. It's a work of God for God. All things through Christ, by Christ, and they're for Christ. And He will have dominion over all things. He's preeminent. All the hostility, all the hatred, all the evil is subjugated at the cross. All the peace, all the joy, all the harmony that every human longs for has been secured by the cross. We're simply waiting. And we're laboring in the midst of waiting as we look forward to the day that it's all consummated that we see it in all of its splendor. I've been thinking over the past couple of months about, this has been one of the things I've been meditating on the past couple of months, is all the, the different words in the scriptures that are used to refer to you and I. I'm specifically talking about Christians this morning. All the, there are, 
Unbelievable amount of words. It'd be a great sermon series someday. Just go through all of these different things that you and I are called. I've been thinking if there were two that I could implant in all of our minds to govern our hearts in the midst of all of the things that are going on right now, it's probably two. It's that a pilgrim and ambassador. Pilgrim ambassador. Has great implications, I think. And I think it is a good way of pressing home what Paul is pointing out to us here. Pilgrim, because this is not our home, this is a place of hostility, a place of fallenness, a place that needs to be reconciled, and we're passing through on our way to that celestial city that has already been secured. And frankly, too many of us are too invested here. But that doesn't mean we are to have an unengaged pilgrim mindset that many have. The world's going to burn, so it doesn't really matter what I do in it or what happens in it. No, we're also to be an ambassador. We're to represent our king here. This is our father's world. This is our Lord's world. And the church is an outpost of heaven promising what is to come. God has not given up on this world. No, as this passage is pointing out and is showing us, he has this world very much in view. This is his world. And the picture that we see in Revelation, when that new city, Jerusalem, in all of its glory, in all of its splendor, as it is prepared in heaven, it then, what does it do? It descends. It descends upon the earth. And it comes upon this earth. This earth is renewed. It's not recreated. It's renewed. Herman Bovink, a 19th century theologian, once wrote helpfully, he said this, Grace restores and perfects nature. Grace restores and it perfects nature. Christ did not lose this world he created. He's restoring it. And he will perfect it. Evil doesn't win the battle. It doesn't overcome. If it did, then he wouldn't be preeminent. And this has great implications for you and I, united in our witness as we go out united in our mission. few applications thinking about this. First, we're ambassadors with the message of true life. We're ambassadors with the message of true life because we have the story. Understand the story. Paul, even here, Throughout his letters and all the New Testament writers, they're trying to get you and I to see ourselves and to see what we're living in in the midst of the grand story. The story. I heard it said once, if grace means happily ever after, it begins with once upon a time. 
And that's right, we have a story, and it begins at creation. It's a story with four chapters, four chapters that encompass all of human history. You need to know this story. You need to have the story on the tip of your tongue, and in the forefront of your mind, and on your heart as you're interacting with others. This story, four chapters. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Four chapters. As evangelical Christians, I think we often talk about those two middle chapters. We talk about fall and we talk about redemption. And we forget the two other chapters. And it makes for an incomplete story. I refuse to show up late for a movie. If I'm going to miss the first four minutes, I don't want to watch the movie. And if we got to leave before the last four minutes, I don't want to watch everything that came before it. Because if you miss the beginning or you miss the end, you miss that opening dialogue or you miss that closing conclusion, then it doesn't make sense. When you and I begin to understand the beginning of the story and the end of the story, it makes the fall and makes redemption pop in 3D. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. You need to know that story. Tolkien, who knew stories wonderful storyteller, used to speak about the gospel as the greatest of all stories. You have the greatest of stories because it's the truest of stories. And people around us are longing for the right story. You go back to creation and you lead them to see the fall and redemption, and then consummation in Christ. I thought about this a lot over these years that it seems like that we are more and more cold, uh, wicked, or unloving, or intolerant, or unkind when you and I speak biblical truths in our culture and people say, oh, you just, you Christians are just unloving. I think how we have to answer that in our minds and our hearts is that, no, what we are seeking to do is the most loving thing of all. We are the greatest lover of people on the face of the earth because we're aimed at true human flourishing. Our neighbors, they only experience true humanity in all its glory as they're united to the glory of Christ, as they find themselves in the midst of that story, and as they're united to Christ in it. The, more, the world will mock us, especially in this day and age. We hear that we're unkind, communicating the truth we know. But Bob Inc. again comments this way. He says, grace is opposed to sin, not nature. And that's right. It's opposed to sin, not nature. 
This is why it's so important for you to understand first creation before you talk about the fall. Grace is not opposed to nature. It's opposed to sin. The kingdom of God is hostile to nothing but sin alone. Sin is aimed at the destruction of mankind and the world with it. Why? Because sin is always anti-creation because it is anti-creator. It distorts God's design and purposes. So when you and I speak against sin, it's the most loving thing that we can possibly do. Not to be ashamed, because the gospel is the answer. So second, as an ambassador, share the story. Many of us, I think, think, well, I'm not quite sure how to share this story in, in this day and age. It's met with such hostility. Will you share the story? Who made them and what they were created for and the awful effects of the fall and the redemption that comes in Christ and the consummation of all things that come when he returns and he sets all things right. It's fascinating to me that philosophers have begun to take notice that people love to see themselves in a story. Maybe the most influential philosopher of the last hundred years is the Canadian Charles Taylor. Charles Taylor, who is no Christian, often talks about people being what he calls narrative animals. He says we define who we are and what we ought to do on the basis of what story we see ourselves in. You think about the issues of our day, the things that have just rattled just over the last year, and you think of people as they stand before a microphone and a news reporter interviews them, they always are couching it within the story. Their story. This is the problem. And this is what I'm wrestling with. And here is the answer I see for that problem, the story. Taylor argues that the imminent, what is before us, has become the dominant perspective. I think that's right. Kind of radical, exclusive humanism and what is what holds sway. And the goal in almost all the stories is human flourishing. In our day, the transcendent has just kind of disappeared. It's the first time in the history of mankind that it's actually a viable option to believe that there's nothing transcendent. And that all that matters is the material world, the natural world, what is before you and I. So how do you engage that? Taylor, who's no Christian, says the way you engage that story is you tell a story. Isn't that fascinating? Think about all the upheaval in this country. People have a vision for what is wrong with the world, and they have a vision for all that will save it. They have the middle two chapters always. 
In fact, they become evangelists often for what they believe. And so we have the gospel according to educators and the gospel according to moralists and the gospel according to liberals and the gospel according to conservatives and the gospel according to Marxists and the gospel according to libertarians and the gospel according to feminists and the gospel according to intersectionality and on we go. Some of the longings or movements have some benefit to them. Some do not. But our story has a benefit for everyone because it's the true story. I was, um, I am not a gifted evangelist like some of you. Uh, think of Kelly or Nick, much more gifted in evangelism than I am. Uh, I've been called to be an evangelist, as all of you have been. So I try to seize moments here and there. One that I found works for me over the years is, uh, you may have noticed how nice and shiny my shoes are this morning, and that's because I was traveling, and at the Atlanta airport, uh, I had a man shine my shoes. And I'll do that if I have a little extra time and have $15 in my pocket because it's an easy in for me. Uh, my, my grandfather, my great-grandfather came over from Greece with a shirt on his back and arrived in New York City and he began shining shoes. And then he opened up a shoe store and then my grandfather took over that shoe store and shined shoes and repaired shoes. And then my dad was supposed to, but refused, so my uncle did. And so he shined shoes and repaired shoes. And now my cousin shined shoes and repairs shoes. And so I will get into the chair and put my feet up and it's usually a little bit of silence to see they're going to breach a subject, and then I will just say, you know, I come from a long line of shoe shiners. I'm entering his story, right? Just making a connection. I was in Atlanta uh, two weeks ago and had, had 30 minutes and $15 in my pocket, so I found the shoe shine guy and sat up in the chair and I did that, just opened the conversation and uh, immediately began the connection and he starts telling me about the guy that taught him to shine shoes. And he was a captain, he was a sergeant in the army during World War II and he began to tell me a lewd story about that sergeant and he noticed that I didn't laugh and didn't think it was very funny. And, but he picked up on the fact that I was interested in the fact that he was a sergeant and so he's trying to connect with me, right? He was a good talker, but he also probably understood it might mean a better tip. And so he begins talking about the sergeant, and he tells a story about the sergeant. He says the sergeant, and this is his words, was a black man, and he had a mixed, a mixed company of blacks and whites. And he said they would, the sergeant would go down the line, and he would tell them to get into this foxhole and get into this foxhole during World War II. And he said, though. In his words, the white men would complain and say that you're giving the best spots to the black men. And the black men, if he gave those spots, would say you're giving the best spots to the white men. And he said, so the sergeant, he said, figured out that he would put a white man and he'd put a black man in every foxhole. And they'd have to spend the night together. And he said, I would tell them, just figure it out. Ah, 
doesn't get easier. Now I can take that story, and he's telling it because he's a black man, I'm a white man. He's telling it because these are the things going on in our culture right now. This is part of the story that he's living in, and so now I get to bring the story to bear. Isn't it fascinating and horrific that people created with equal dignity and worth would hate one another for the color of their skin? Creation, let's talk about it. Fall, let's talk about it. And then it doesn't get served up any easier. There's reconciliation as they're in the foxhole together as they're suffering through duress. You know, there is an answer to all of this. It says one who didn't go in a foxhole but hung upon the cross. And you know what? He brings reconciliation not only between people but between people and God for all of eternity. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Just pull them into the story. Again, I'm not a gifted evangelist, but telling the story and helping them to see themselves in the true story. Finally, as pilgrims, remember it is the story, this story, that produced true lasting fruit. Dear Carson was reflecting upon the fact that some have pointed out over the past few decades that many in the Western world have become single-issue people, and the church is not immune to this. He said, the result, he says, is that many Christians assume the gospel, but are passionate about something on the relative periphery, abortion, poverty, forms of worship, cultural decay, ecology, overpopulation, pornography, family breakdown, and much more. And he says this, by labeling these complex subjects relatively peripheral, I open myself to attack from as many quarters as there are subjects on the list. For example... Some of those whose every thought is shaded green will not be convinced that the ecological problems we face are peripheral to human survival. But Carson says this, I remain quite unrepentant. And he should. From a biblical, theological perspective, these challenges, as serious as they are, are reflections of the still deeper problem, our odious alienation from God. And that is right. As pilgrims, remember it is people embracing the Christ of the story that will produce the eternal and the present fruit that you and I desire to see. We can set about trying to remedy all these problems, but if we don't start with addressing what is central, we're but treating symptoms. And it has a little bit of effect, but it's not lasting. And it's surely not eternal. You want to affect real change, then you aim at the root. Listen, we are all ambassadors here, and so we are all to get involved in the issues around us. But as Carson says, we do so from the center out. That is, 
by beginning with full orbed gospel proclamation and witness and passion and then while acknowledging that no one can do everything, we each do our own significant something to address the effects of sin in our world. The good news of Jesus Christ, Carson says, will never allow us to be smug or otherworldly in the face of suffering and evil, but what does it profit us to save the world from smog and damn our own souls? Amen. Start from the center out. We seek to share the story because that will change lives. And then all of these things get addressed. Listen, I care about all suffering. I hope you do too. You have to if you have the four chapters in view. This wasn't the created world that Christ made the world to be like. And so you're to grieve over suffering and pain and affliction. So Christians care about all suffering, but especially about eternal suffering. We care for human flourishing, but especially everlasting human flourishing. We care about the common good, but we care especially about the ultimate good. There's an entire story. It didn't start with this generation. It didn't start with this country. It didn't start with the Western world. It started when God said, let there be light. And the problem isn't simply poverty or illiteracy or a lack of tolerance or hatred. The problem is sin and fallen mankind. And the answer is Christ. And he's returning. And all will ultimately be reconciled to him. But we want to see those knees bowing in joy and gladness before him. The world needs us to tell them this story. Creation, full redemption, consummation. I hope you can say with the Apostle Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I give you praise this morning as your children as pilgrims in this land, as ambassadors of our great King, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would use us. And we would set our minds on things above, and yet we would be of earthly good because, in fact, we are doing so. May you use us to impact the world around us, to save the lost, our neighbors, our family, our friends, our co-workers. For your glory, for your praise, for all of eternity. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ.
Amen.